You're listening to episode 34 of Caucus Talk, your source for culture, history, and tourism in the North Caucasus mountains of Russia. My name's Andrew. And I'm Eli. So, Andrew, we, um, we feature kind of three main things on this podcast, as we yes. say, week by week. Culture, history, and tourism. That's right. And there, if there's one thing that unites all of those topics, and in fact, all of humanity. <laughs> all of everything. All of everything. It is obviously food. Am I right? Yes. All right. Very well, very well said. Yeah. I just came up with that. And <laughs> because of this through thread, and because of many requests from our listeners. Seriously, many requests. Yeah. We are going to devote a couple episodes to a new mini series called Food. <laughs> <laughs> These, this mini series is your source for food in the North Caucasus. <laughs> well, at least information about food. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And we have uh, a special guest back, back in our the studio. Our first return guest. That's right. right. Give it up for my wife, Christy. Yes. Hey, guys. All right. Yes. I, you know, what's funny. The phrase in my head was your friend and mine, but I sort of expect, but you said wife, but I still have the phrase in my head. So the phrase was like your wife and mine, but I know it's, I'll probably um, we'll just stop cut right that. there. That's really <laughs> awkward. <laughs> Give our listeners the wrong idea here about our Moving commune right here in Russia. Um, okay. <laughs> so. Andrew, Chris- where do we start with food? Because we could yes. start, I mean, anywhere. And, you know, I just want to start eating, but. We start with eating. No, it's we're interesting. Just gonna, we're just going to put food in our mouths and talk with food in our mouths. That's going to be our, our thing, right? This, we got to go but get back to our roots here. We, right. one of our first episodes, episode seven, was about shashlik and chai, meat and tea in the Caucasus. Man, and do you remember? I just interrupt you. Do you remember when seven was our goal, and now it's quote one of our first? That was that. That was the pod fade, and we <laughs> blasted right over that it. speed bump. And our listeners um, are like, every episode, you guys congratulate yourselves on still existing. <laughs> so could you just move on with it? By the All way, right. speaking of speed bumps, <laughs> I have. Can I take this? Is like some kind of segment. All right, we got a segment. This is a Russian language insight I learned this past week. Do you know what they call speed bumps in Russian, the slang term? Um, I don't even know the word for speed in Russian, and bump <laughs> would be, uh, I don't even, yep, I'm totally at a loss. They call them lying down policemen. No way. Policemen on the ground, yeah. How do you it's say like, it? Lezhashi Politsky. You're kidding me. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good name for well, them. Yeah. If you ever wanted an insider's take on the relationship between authority figures and the common person, <laughs> I think you just got it. That's really funny, but also really insightful. I mean, seriously, it really kind of peels back a New bit segment. of the- yeah, segment, that's Russian language rebound or something. Or lying down policemen. Well, that's also a little dark, but. <clears throat> okay. 
So I don't remember what you were saying before, but we... I was trying to segue, <laughs> and we both just blew it out of the water. Uh, <laughs> hey, right. so, but we were talking about our initial food in the Caucasus episode. Ah, that's right. About Number shashlik seven. and chai. And mm. I think we've... That's the episode we've gotten the most feedback, positive feedback of all our episodes. Eli's mom says that's the best episode. <laughs> she said one that's of our the one she fans. recommends to all of her friends to start with. Oh, yeah, to start with, right? To start yes. with. It's a yes. great entry point. Okay. Yeah. So, and obviously we exclusively talked about meat, <laughs> kebabs, <laughs> and, and uh, hot tea in that episode. There is a lot more to food in the North Caucasus. So this is exciting. And uh, uh, Christy got real excited when we heard we were going to be talking about this. Um, so uh, she volunteered herself. Yeah, hey. food is one of my favorite topics in any culture. So See, it brings us all together. Well, let's get into it. Yes. Okay, so... Um, if I you've found- ever seen Sesame Street... Back in the day, there was uh-huh. one of their little skits that they did. It was called This Is Your Life. And they would go to like the grocery store and they have all the produce sitting there. And you've got a guy, Smiley, uh, you know, um, host of the game show. And he would pick one of the pieces of produce, like a watermelon. And he'd be like, this is your life. And they bring in all the people from their past who they had forgotten. And they bring in like the sun and the sun comes in the door and it's like, oh, hello, sun. It's like, I was the one who warmed you. And and then bring in the farmer. It's like, oh, the farmer. And then the watering can. There's all these people who helped watermelon to become what it is today. That's kind of what we're going to do with food right now, isn't it, Andrew? Exactly what we're going to do. This is your life. You took the words out of my mouth. Um, I'm going to call you guys Smiley. Yeah. Um, thanks for that. First Sesame Street reference on Caucus <laughs> Talk, I think. Hashtag Sesame Street. Okay. So food is a fascinating topic because it's something everybody has in common. It's such a big part of our lives. And like you said earlier, it's connected to almost every part of our life in some way. Um, and so many different countries and parts of the world have such different kinds of food. And so um, I was thinking, what can like the different kind of food tell you about that place where it's from? Um, so yeah, that's a great question. Yes. Um, so you've heard of TED Talks, right? Oh, for sure. Have you given a TED Talk? Eli? I, I wish I, I wish I had. I have Eli, not. If you could give a TED Talk, what would you give a TED Talk on? The North Caucasus. Nice. Um, Bing! Andrew, yeah. let's make it our, on a, let's put on our bucket list to get on a TEDx talk somewhere. We could do that. Lowest number of views ever for a TED talk. <laughs> Most random topic. So um, you want to know, I came across a Justin Bieber YouTube video that has as many dislikes. It has over 9 million dislikes <laughs> and growing. <laughs> Uh, so I added a dislike to it. Anyway, it's like the highest disliked video on YouTube. That's how it came up. <laughs> how is that the connection? We, that's what our TED Talk video would be like. Well, you just said lowest views. Anyways, anyways. So I found there's a website about TED ideas. Mm. And it's basically a TED Talk in writing. Um, but I found a fascinating TED, TED idea article. And it was about 
food and culture, what food tells you, what it can tell you about where you're from. Wow. Uh, and uh, this author listed six different kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, like identities or things food can tell you about uh-huh. yourself or, or a place where it's from. So I like want to- insights look, into a culture. Kind of, and like what it means. Like roles. Yeah, like more like the role it plays, yeah. Okay. Um, so I want to read these off, and then maybe we can talk about it a little bit. I'm sure you will have more insights into what these things mean. No, this than is I, did fa- I haven't thought about glance. it this way yeah. very much. Okay. So six things food can tell us about a culture or its role. Food as identity. Food as survival. Food as status. This food, is deep. food as pleasure. Got that one. Food as community. And food as humanity. Um, Anything? Those are really deep. Yeah. So are we going to unpack them a little bit? Yeah. What do you Just want to unpack? A little bit. Does something, what stood out to you? Well, so those. food as identity, meaning like this is a marker of our culture, of who we are, that kind of thing. Like, this yes. really is our thing. Yes, that's right. So, so what's you're from the South? What's like an identity, a food identity marker for you? Because I know of ones that I think are for you, like possum and okra. But I want to know what you think. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely say barbecue. That was like, definitely uh, barbecue came to mind for sure. All right. Yep. All right. Whereas yeah, the for rest me, of the world, when they think of America, they think they think McDonald's burgers and right, fries. Right. And but you don't. That's not like an identity marker for you as an insider. Like for me, from the Mid Atlantic, DC area, Chesapeake Bay blue crabs. That's like a definite identity thing, a regional thing, and like huh. you got to know how to eat them, and and that actually gets to like status and community because you know you pull someone over and they're like, oh crabs you're like let me show you how to do it because i'm in the know and you obviously don't know how to do this but i'm gonna (laughs) initiate you and then you know brings people together yeah okay all right what stands out to you um i and that was a plural you when i was reading this (laughs) i'll let andrew answer (laughs) i think i feel like especially in uh, kind of the last 10, 15 years as social media has kind of taken over the world. I think, uh, I think food as status has become like a really big deal in kind of our day and age, especially yeah. when you think about like, I mean, this term gets thrown around all the time, foodie, I'm a foodie, you know, and people are Instagramming all the time, just the food on their plate, what it looks like, what they're eating, you know? And I think that, whether people want to or not that often is like portraying some kind of status, you know? I think it's a really interesting, a really interesting observation. And I'm sure in the next few decades, we'll have dissertations on the, the like social media food thing that happened, you know, in the early (laughs) 2000s. No, seriously. I think you're right. I think it's such a, if you step back, it's like, what am I, what am, what am I actually doing? (laughs) <laughs> yeah christy yeah. do you have any anything stand out when you read heard all this i mean food as status has been that way throughout history mm-hmm. now 
I mean, now different types of food are available to like most people can afford different types of food, whereas like, you know, hundreds of years ago, only certain people could afford meat. I remember reading about the Middle Ages and like only the queen could afford oranges and having oranges brought in or like certain spices was this giant status symbol. Um, I think maybe even more so than than now. But even so, you still have high class food, high class grocery stores. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and you know all that stuff, and then it gets in with marketing. Um, I'm a little confused by the food as humanity because you already have survival. Now yeah. your note here, Andrew says dishes for survival based solely on what is available. Mm-hmm. That must be in a limited framework, like what's available in most like large cities is a lot. Is that survival or so? Well, what basically what this article was saying in many parts of the world, especially more uh, rural parts, there's only a couple kind of foods or crops available. And depending on like whether or not it rained a lot or not, what came out of the harvest kind of the main foods that people eat just depend on what grew that year or what didn't grow, you know? So that's kind of what the survival piece is talking about. Um, the humanity, I mean, he made a great point and, or sorry, she did, uh, this author, Amy Choi, she said how, I mean, the first, the first thing a human does when he or she is born is eats, you know, nurses or bottle or whatever. Or breast. And so like from the very beginning, that's like the first act a person does. And that it really when you think about it, that defines our entire existence really as humans is eating. Nursing. <laughs> I mean food. Yeah. That's pretty profound. I was thinking about other aspects of food, how food communicates, like food as communication, um in terms of it, I mean, a lot of these cross over with others, but like how we serve, what we serve, when and, and where we eat, enjoy our food is communicating um, to others and to ourselves certain values. Food as art is a big one. And I think these all fall. I think humanity is a nice catch all one because mm-hmm. there's a lot to food that isn't just the six above it, community, pleasure, status, survival or identity, the five above it. Um, so there's definitely lots to explore here. Okay, do you think one, two, one or two of these really predominate in the North Caucasus? Community, for sure. I would say identity and community. Uh-huh. I agree. I agree. I think identity, and the reason, we'll get into it, uh-huh. but I can eat two things that either look and taste almost identical to me, and, to, and people will explain to me, well, this is from there, and these are from these people, and they're very different. Or I can eat two things that have the exact same name that bear almost no resemblance to one another. And these are all like identity markers. I think identity is really huge and definitely community. Yeah. 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 And we're going to talk about that kind of in our content today, but it's a good, good intro. Good uh, insights, everybody. That's right. We're only at minute 16. So that's pretty good (laughs) intro for us. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, So there's this saying it, What's this is like a really trendy saying in the United States? Form the table, right? What? Form I never t- heard it. <laughs> That's right. Form right? the form the no, table. No, no. 
farm to table. Like restaurants oh, oh, want to yeah, be yeah, yeah, farm yeah. to table yes, restaurants. Yes, 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 yes. Farm to table. So this means the food is like direct from a farm, not from Kroger. Gotcha. Yeah. And that is kind of implying it's like healthy, no additives, chemicals. It's real food. All that stuff. Yeah. Okay. No offense to Kroger. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I would Kroger. say, I would say, I think, correct me if I'm wrong. I think a lot of, when you start talking about food in the North Caucasus, there is a lot of farm to table happening. Yes, absolutely. And there's a lot of pride in that as well. Like people you, here are very, very proud that. how yeah. they have healthy food with no additives and no chemicals. And I mean, one thing I've learned when sh- shopping for food in a market setting, well, let me just, maybe I'll say this, Andrew, but, but in, in where we are, like to go to a grocery store where things are packaged on the shelf and got barcodes or whatever, and to go to an outdoor market or street sellers are totally equal. Like you would just as well go to one as the other. There's nothing special or unique about going to an outdoor market. Like in the U.S., in, in it's the more North of a Caucasus. set apart. That's yeah, right. In the North yeah. Caucasus. Yeah. In in the U.S., it's more of a set apart thing. It's a farmers market, blah, blah, blah. and those are more popular. But it's not like and it's norm- like normally those, where you would go. Those sellers. They're kind of the special ones at the farmer's market. Right. You know? <laughs> but here it's just like the two versions. Would you agree with that? That those are. Yeah. And here it's more daily life. Like in the U.S., I would go. It was like a big deal to go to a farmer's market and I would maybe get there like once every two months. And it was a special trip. And like, ooh, you went to the farmer's market. Whereas here, like there's no status symbol about it. Most right. women like in their normal grocery shopping, they may right. once a week go to the grocery store and they may once a week go to the farmer's market. Right. Or so not there's the not farmer's market, just the market. Just the market. There's not an event associated with it no. in the same way that, okay, so when so I go to the market. it is an event going there. You know what I mean? But like, <laughs> Especially from, depending on how many children you bring. This is true. We're from North Carolina and then like we're from a big city there and the farmer's market was just open on Saturdays, right? No, yeah, it was open six it was days open a week. week. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. But in a lot of cities, they're open only open on Saturdays. Yeah, shows how much shopping you do, Andrew. <laughs> Very. So true. what I was going to say is, it's like a normal thing. I learned quickly as part of just kind of the, um, what you do when you buy produce in the market. You one of the questions is, uh, um, where's where's this thing from? And honestly, I ask it not really because I know what's the difference between apples from Krasnodar <laughs> or apples from Adigeo? But it's like, it's a thing. You just ask them. They're like, and that gives them the chance to be like, oh, this is local. This is from just, it's not from across the, and they like, you know, they sell you on it. And that's one of the big things. It's like, where's this thing from? Yeah, it's true. So I think that's the first thing to emphasize about food in the North Caucasus is the word farm. So much stuff is either grown locally or raised locally. So we're mm-hmm. talking about, um, let's talk about meat first. Obviously, we, we know meat is a big deal, but so many people, a lot of the North Caucasus is uh, in like more agricultural or rural. Once you get outside the cities, so many people own cows, sheep, chickens, duck, ducks, chickens. Rabbits, turkeys, turkeys, turkeys. Yep. Did I miss any geese? I think one of the 
big differences between the U.S. and the North. I mean, there are tons of big differences between the other North <laughs> Caucasus in terms of how people grow food. In yeah. the U.S. now, it's primarily like large commercial farms. Yes. Not many people have their, I mean, occasionally, so it's getting popular in the U.S. for people to have chickens. We have a couple of friends, even my parents have their own chickens. But aside from the occasional person who has their own chickens and maybe grows a few tomato plants, like not many people in the U.S. grow the fruits and veggies to feed their family for the year and have the animals to provide their family with, you know, meat and dairy for the year. But here in the North Caucasus, like if you have your own house, it's expected that you're going to use your land to grow your own food. Yes. (laughs) We have some friends who planted like a little bitty plot of grass. It's literally like 10 feet by 10 feet plot of grass in their yard. And they showed it to us and they were like, look, it's like America. We have a plot of grass. And their (laughs) friends and neighbors were absolutely appalled that they did not (laughs) use that 10 foot by 10 foot area (laughs) to plant it full of cucumbers and tomatoes and like everything that you could plant it full of. It's like those neighborhood committees in the U.S. where there's a certain like aesthetic r- requirement, you know, <laughs> yes. like you have to have a certain kind of landscape and like you have to have a lawn and, and mow it and whatever. And it's like in this neighborhood, you are not allowed to have a lawn. But that's a really good point. I mean, one of the big aesthetic differences you might notice when you travel in the North Caucasus is landscaping is not so much a thing. It happens some places, but certainly at people's homes. There's not a there's not the lawn thing, right. and part of it is not just an a purely aesthetic thing. It's a it's a result of of understanding what land is for and and kind of the, the values of what what you do with your own space. And this is one of them. Well, I think too, it's generations of survival and upheaval and not knowing, you know, mm. what the next political thing coming down the pipeline or just not knowing like what the future is going to hold. And so people as a security, they really prepare and plan by, you know, they might not know when their next paycheck is going to come, but they always know that they've got canned tomatoes in the pantry and they've got their cows got milk and there's, there's a security in that. Yeah. And that's, we hope to one day talk about kind of jobs in the economy in the North Caucasus, but that's a big thing is, even if at times in certain places in the Caucasus, people would really struggle finding consistent work. But when you do have like a good number of cows and sheep, like that also is a good source of income to be able to, you know, sell that meat or just the foods there for your family, you know? I mean, that's a good point because I mean, just to go on that, like we usually think many, many people in the, in North America, I think, have the luxury of thinking of income as like a you have one or two primary income streams and that's yeah. what you need. I think it's probably I I may be wrong, but I think it's like multiple income streams from different times, different seasons is probably more typical there. And one story that just comes to mind, <laughs> I took a taxi from my family took a taxi from Grozny back to Pitigorsk and through a contact, we got a taxi driver, and this guy goes back and forth. Well, since he's coming, it was that time of year, it was the end of summer, he puts our family in the car, and he loads up the back. It's like a station wagon, and he loads up the back with these red buckets, and these buckets are really typical where we are. They're what? Probably a gallon and a half? Yeah. Two yeah. gallons? I mean, and they're very just 
standard, pretty cheap, easy to get. And he loads stacks. And st- <laughs> he, he, he picks us up and swings by his house to get, and I start counting them. And I'm like, 30, 40, 50 <gasps> buckets in the back of his car. And so as we're going and talking, I said, what are the buckets for? He says, well, right near Pitygorsk is a great um, berry growing region, raspberries. And there's like a three, five week (laughs) window. And this guy, he says he normally goes with 300 buckets. (gasps) Wow. And so I'm sitting here thinking like, whoa, maybe this is like a a bigger operation. And he gets a truck. I ask him, he's like, no, no, (laughs) I put him in my bracket like leather upholstered station wagon. And it was a Mercedes. And, and I'm, I'm going to say, where do you put them? And he literally stacked, he, he like puts buckets and then puts a layer of cardboard and then another layer of buckets and fills like every cubic inch Man. or centimeter in the car with buckets of raspberries. And his wife, it's like a canning machine because you got to can them quick. And so she just like cranks. <sighs> yeah. I mean, that's like, that's totally yeah. normal here. Who does yeah, that? Totally normal. Everybody yeah. here does that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's something as a woman here, it's like embarrassing if you don't can <laughs> food for your family every year. And people here really do. I mean, they pickle and can everything. I'll never forget the first time I went to the market. And you're used to like, okay, in America, basically, if this, is there anything we're used to pickling other than cucumbers? Do, do Americans pickle really anything else? Cabbage no, maybe pickle, for sauerkraut? A pickle, a pickle is a cucumber. I mean, that tells you... How we see it. Right. So Russians pickle like cabbage and tomatoes. And I mean, those things, I was like, yeah, those things like weren't so weird to me. But then I saw an entire watermelon in a giant pickled jar. And that's like normal to pickle here, which I've never tasted a pickled watermelon. We need to do that. I have not been brave enough. And there's pickled eggs. Yes. And all sorts of. Things. Mushrooms and yeah. pretty much every vegetable they pickle. Yeah. So that basically all that to say, um, lots of people here raise their own cattle and grow their own food. They have big gardens, vegetables, lots of probably the main ones would be tomatoes, cucumbers, those are the, the big ones, um, eggplant. Um, and then uh there are fruit trees everywhere. All yeah. kinds of fruit like, trees. Absolutely everywhere. Our kids love walking to and from preschool because all through the summer, like first you pick cherries walking to and from preschool in the beginning of the summer. And then later right. you pick apricots and then plums. Yeah. And it's just awesome. There are fruit trees everywhere. Yeah. And, yeah. So and they're lots, not like cultivated. Yeah. They're, they tend to be kind of scrappy and, you mm-hmm. know, the fruit's not amazing. And that's why people don't sell it. But when it is ripe, you do have to kind of get there because... People start picking them as soon as they come out, even when they're green. You're like, come on, guys, let them ripen. Yeah. But- yeah. So you really see that. Like, if you go to the open air market here, everything sells in season. So you've got, like, I don't know what, a month season for certain fruits. Yeah. And it's amazing yeah. when they're yeah. available and then they're gone. <laughs> and then they're gone. Yeah. That's the other thing about the open air market is we tend to think of it as local, but you, what happens when you see bananas for sale at the open air market? So you realize that some of the open air stuff implies that it's local, but it doesn't always imply that. And right. every now and then I'll ask where something's from and they'll be like, it's from Iran. I'm like, oh, it's <laughs> not local at all. Yeah, yeah there are th- some things like bananas that they have year round. 
But but a lot of the stuff at the local market, you can only get it in season. Like today, yes. I made a bunch of pesto because there's about a two-month window out of the whole year that you can get basil in yes. our city. And so I bought a ton of basil and spent the morning making all of my batches of pesto for the year and freezing them because that that's your window. Like <laughs> Literally a month ago, I was at the market and asked the lady we normally buy like greens and herbs from if she had basil. And she like laughed this haughty laugh at me and said, <laughs> basil. Nobody has basil right now. Food as status. Boom, right in your like, face. Duh. It's like, could I have asked a dumber question in that moment? You fell right into it. She was so happy. Like, you stupid American man. Like, okay, my wife Andrew. just wrote it on the list. <laughs> ah, yeah, that's true. You have to learn these things. Living seasonally is even kind of trending. And that's another thing. So, yeah, sometimes it's annoying, but mostly I really like that I know that the stuff that I'm buying is the stuff that's growing locally right right now. Yeah. So farm to market and then to table. Market to table. That's right. Um, Often just farm to table. Um, Christy, what could you, uh, since you have a little more experience than me and Eli uh, cooking here. In in the Caucasus, and being more in that environment, um, what can you tell our listeners about kind of the cooking process in the Caucasus? <laughs> so, um, in cooking in the Caucasus, almost solely it's women who do the cooking. Men grill the kebabs, the shashlik kebabs outside. Yeah. If there's like an event where you're doing shashlik, but other than that, it's pretty much a hundred percent women in the kitchen. And so normally when we go to someone else's house in the Caucasus, like I'm in the kitchen with the women and Andrew's in the dining room with the men. So Andrew really doesn't see the cooking process no. very much. I enjoy the the final product. <laughs> and and unless some of you guys think that 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 Andrew and Christy are just super traditional or, or so Andrew's chauvinist. Fashioned. It's really, actually, it's just because they're kind of hyper social and they have people over all the time. And so they're in this situation all the time. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's a good thing. Is there like, if you had to compare kind of the cooking process here compared Mm -hmm. to where we're from, what what would you say? So in, in some ways, I'm jealous of the cooking process here because it's super communal. And often women live, you know, in community with relatives. And so here when we have company come over, it's pretty much me trying to keep the kids out of my hair while I'm, you know, making this meal for company. Whereas in the North Caucasus, when a woman makes a meal for company, generally her sister-in-law comes to help and the grandma might be there to help and their nieces are there. And it's, it's very much a, the women all together, this communal thing. So that that's definitely a big difference. Um, another big difference is you pretty much have to make everything from scratch here. Yeah. Whereas, like, in the U.S., if I'm having friends over, I might buy a frozen lasagna and I might, you know, stick it in the oven and serve it to people for dinner. Or I might buy a cake mix from the grocery store and, you know, add eggs and water or whatever, mix it up and be done. Um, here, you pretty much have to make everything from scratch. So it's a lot more... 
of a drawn out process than it is in the U.S. Like I was talking to one of my American friends the other day here, and she said she never makes homemade pizza here because you have to make the dough. There's not like you don't buy pre-made pizza crusts here. You have to make the dough homemade, and then you have to make the sauce homemade, and then you have to, you know, grate the cheese. You don't just buy grated cheese. And <laughs> so it's like it, it really is. It, there's a lot more work and time that goes into making stuff from scratch here. And so when women make meals for their families here, it's it's a lot more time consuming. Like there are a lot of women who spend a lot of their days right. just right. making breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And my sense mm-hmm. is because of that, if that's your life, there's kind of a more of a ongoing rolling um, feel to it in terms of like... I think meal by meal. So I'm like you. If I think about a, a a pizza, I think about a pizza. And it's one thing, and you got to make all that stuff, and then you're done with it. However, yeah. if I were doing that every day, I might make a lot of dough or have some something waiting in the wings, you know, or prepare things kind of ahead of time. Or while I'm doing the dough, do something else that rises for tomorrow. I could see that there's a kind of skill and mastery of, of the time scale so that it's not every meal is super intensive in the yes. same way. Yes, absolutely. That's something that's really different here than in the U.S. Here, meals tend to be pretty simple uh, Mm, in terms of, like, the recipes themselves aren't complicated. Like, they might have a number of different things that they serve, but the recipes themselves are really simple. Let's unpack that just a little bit because it's hard to get that, I think, if you haven't been there. Yes. So Can I tell you my favorite quote from an American about food in the Caucasus. (laughs) (laughs) We had, so Andrew does his tour business and he has American tourists who come and visit the Caucasus. And we ask for feedback when people are done. And we asked for feedback from this group of young, like college age guys who had been here one time. And one of them was like, well, I realized that there are three food groups in the Caucasus. (laughs) Meat, dough, and fried dough. (laughs) <laughs> we cracked up we were like it's so true yeah. like there really is um things and i think andrew and i were talking about so much of that is historically and geographically based i mean people right. in the north caucasus they live in mountainous you know craggy mountains many of them and a lot of them are you know sheep cow herders and so right. They have access to meat and dairy, and then they have access to grain. But they're you're really not gonna, you're not going to have greens growing at twelve thousand feet easily or at all, or in October or, or in October, you know, right? Yeah, and just so, just plant kale. It's a hearty green. <laughs> so so the way that that I think translates to the table one way is like for us, you may have a big main thing with a with a salad or one or two sides. It feels sometimes when you eat in the Caucasus, like it's all sides. There's one big thing of rice. Or there's one big thing of some kind of stew. Dish. Or it's all the main dish. <laughs> it feels dish. more there's like it's too. all the main dish to me. <laughs> right. I mean, there's, and there's like five different, seven different things. There's little bowls of pickles. There's little bowls of olives. There's, there's a thing, uh, like a, a pile of just like green onions. <laughs> it's like stalks of green just sitting yeah. there. And what do you do with that? And and people kind of assemble the whole thing on their plates and in their mouths rather than kind of beforehand. It's true. I've, I've at several meals, probably many a meal, just 
kind of leaned back in my chair after having like chicken and rice and veggies and bread and been like, thank you so much. That was so good. And they and say, then the meal comes out. Oh, here comes the main meat dish. <laughs> <laughs> like often you eat chicken before you eat lamb. Like, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chicken's just like kid stuff, you know. <laughs> but yeah, um, that's good. I, you know, there's so much we could say about the the table, kind of the meal itself. We've talked a ton on this podcast about hospitality, how hospitable um, Caucasus people are. Um, I think the main thing I would just want to say here um, is that this is where food as community comes in. And like, I mean, this is where when I go to a Caucasus friend's house, this is where I spend at least 80% of my time is it's at the, the table. table. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They sit me down. And uh, depending on the people there, I'll either have the seat of honor and the oldest person always gets the head of the table, but that's where everything happens. The whole experience, you know, and um, relatives are coming and going. Neighbors are coming and going. Um, Often Christine, the kids are coming and going and I just have, (laughs) I'm just sat there in that seat talking (laughs) with with my host friends, you know? Um, but yeah, it, I mean, I love that place, you know, that's where like life and community and relationship really happens. So let me ask you a question, Andrew. One of the things, one of the stereotypes of Russia is like shots of vodka, you know, at the meal Mm. and parallel to that. One of the things that we spent, it feels like 80% of our first year of Russian language in the university on was (laughs) toasting or like (laughs) well-wishing people, you know, there's, there's sort of like cultural formulas and kind of rules about, and it's comical to me because you always say the same thing, but they really mean it, you know, on your birthday or whatever. So what's that like in the North Caucasus? You have so much experience being hosted. Um, how much of that is present there and, and what does it look like? Uh, you know, everything depends on the house that you're in, but uh, I, people are always willing and ready to receive a toast, kind of your well wishes, or give it. Um, you know, so in some homes, nobody drinks alcohol. In other homes, they're waiting for you with four bottles on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I mean, if you see it for the good that's in it, kind of the the motive behind the toast, it's a really good thing. You know, it gives people an opportunity to uh, kind of wish positive things to others in their lives. You know? So um, let me ask you b- both a question. If you were to pick two or three, like, tips for etiquette about <laughs> being hosted or eating food in the North Caucasus for a potential visitor, tourist, um, caucus talk adventure attendee whenever it's resuscitated uh, or you know are there a couple obviously you're a foreigner and you're not no one's expecting you to act like they do but are there some things that would help to know ahead and, of time uh, I was thinking about this recently because of experience I had the tourist I would just say uh, you don't have the right to just eat a little bit <laughs> <laughs> like you just need to prepare to eat a lot of food. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> Eli, do you know what Andrew does to prepare himself every time before we're going to go to a 
friend's, a caucus friend's house. He starve himself. He skips whatever. So if we're going for dinner, he skips lunch that day. Yeah. If I forget to skip, I'm kicking myself then. Oh, (laughs) yeah, man. (laughs) I would say like, because they prepare so much food for you. One of the funniest quotes I've heard about the North Caucasus is everybody's always like making a big deal about, oh, is it safe there? And uh, somebody who visited here one time said, the biggest danger uh, you have is of overeating. (laughs) (laughs) You know how they can do that surgical thing where they shrink your stomach so you don't have as big an appetite? Maybe we should get one that's like a stomach enlargement, you know, or, or, (laughs) you know, you can have a valve. So you, you like squeeze something in your stomach. That was really gross. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they just, they prepare so much. Like, it's just, of course, they know you're not going to eat it all. You know, it's going to be eaten in the next four meals, probably, all the food that was prepared. But, yeah, th- that was the big thing I would say is come ready to eat. And, yeah. Because that honors them and shows that you appreciate, like, all the work and money that they put into providing that meal for you. Is there a thing about clearing your plate? Because in some cultures, as soon as your plate's empty, it's sort of an affront to the host. In fact, there's a wonderful, um, the HSBC, <laughs> that bank, there's a wonderful commercial that they had about crossing cultures. It's several years old now, but there's this white business guy in a Japanese business meeting in a restaurant. And they're all like really pleased to have him. And they serve him this big, this, this like eel on his plate and looks down at it and sort of like, oh, rolls his eyes. And then it cuts and he's eating the last bite of the eel and sort of wiping his brow. And the host looks over and is like, what? And so the next thing they've brought out an eel that's three times as big. Ah, uh, yes, I've seen that. <laughs> and so then, you know, he uh, sort of takes a breath and then it cuts and he's finished that eel and the hosts are all laughing and look down <laughs> like, ah! Oh! And the last scene is like looking through the windows of the kitchen and these three men are wrestling this enormous gigantic <laughs> eel that they're going to serve. So that, you know, because in the American thing, it's like, you know, you can show honor by clearing your plate and you're right. the clean plate club. And is there a thing about that in the North Caucasus? I mean... Well, if your plate is empty, they will put food on it. Yeah. And often... The grandma will use her fingers to pick you out the best pieces of meat and add them to your plate. Yeah. You just have to care. You have to be um, okay with hearing six to eight times. Why haven't you eaten anything? Yeah. Even though you just finished your fourth plate off, you know? Okay. Um, I, this literally just happened last week. Um, we, uh, I was in Ingushetia, uh, with some friends and we were testing out a, a trek. We're hoping to, uh, turn into, uh, like a, a new trekking route for a tour. And when we came off the mountain, literally this is classic Caucasus moment, but this, this local English man meets us. We don't know him. He says like three sentences to us. And it's like, come in my home. Let's have chai, <laughs> which meant you will have dinner. Uh, and so we were of course very glad to, cause we were famished and we, it was really good. And, uh, we were eating it and he came around to like, without us having any choice to refill our bowls with, it was a soup. And literally my friend had not even taken a bite of his soup yet. And he oh, took man. it and put more into it. Nice. <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> 
So those are, those are good tips. That's what I would say. Simple but true. Yeah. Would you guys add anything else? This is just that. So listeners, this is just part one. We're kind of building the basket in this, this next episode here. And we're um, going to fill it. We're, we're going to fill that. It's all about the dishes. Basket. But is there anything else you guys would add to kind of the, the process and the experience of food with Coxus? The only thing I would, I would say for those who do visit any place cross-culturally, don't be afraid of like making mistakes or doing something wrong or asking questions because the more interest you show in someone's culture or especially food, that's such a connective and honoring thing. You know, what is this? Where's it come from? How did you make it? And get into it. Sometimes I think we can be, even if it's, you know, in our own neighborhood, if we meet someone to go to their house and we don't know exactly what they're expecting, just like go for more than less is what I would say. Be willing to make mistakes or to, to try something. Um, because those are often the ways that we, you know, actually make deeper connections. Yeah. Good word. Good word. Yeah. Cool. Well, Christy, you're coming back for the next episode? I'm coming back. Next episode is the one where we're going to make you guys really hungry because next episode is the one where we actually talk about the actual food. Are we going to have like (laughs) 20 links in the show notes to recipes? Ooh. Ooh. Eli, I think you and I just did synchronized (laughs) ah, ooze. We like food. Uh, Food for enjoyment. Yes, sir. Listeners, if I hope you enjoyed that. I hope literally this whet your appetite um, for our next episode. We're gonna had get, to be said. Yep, had to be said. We're gonna do a a geographical kind of journey through the North Caucasus of all the different through the North Caucasus and the food pyramid and all <laughs> all the different kinds of food. And you did not just bring the USDA into this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> not cool. But uh, cool. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. So make sure to tune in for the, the next episode. Hey, Eli. Our Facebook page is growing slowly. Emphasis on slowly, but surely. I would put the emphasis on surely, but uh, of course I'm serious. Don't call me Shirley. That's good news. Yeah. We're getting out there, man. Yeah, it's really good uh, connecting with, with you listeners, different parts of the world. Um, but, uh, yeah, check out our Facebook page, Caucus Talk, C-A-U-C-A-S Talk. And, uh, of course, we love hearing from me. If you want to s- send us an email, podcast at caucustalk.com. And uh, we love reviews on iTunes. We just got our 27th review rating. <laughs> wow. U- U.S. rating this week. Yeah, so keep them coming. Keep those stars coming. and um. Yeah. So tune in, not next week, but in a couple weeks. We're going to keep this mini series about food going. This was episode 34 of Caucus Talk, your source for culture, history, and tourism in the North Caucasus mountains of Russia. Oh, and we'll see you when you get here. (laughs) 